I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the, the Flight Safety, Safety Detectives. Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host, John, has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and go-team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, my friend, it's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Are you all recovered from the voting week of brain damage? I purposely have not watched any television since Election Day. I've not done the radio. I've avoided even reading the posts that come up because I knew it was just going to be all BS until the votes were in and counted. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's painful. It has put a lot of people on edge. Hell, you can't even talk to friends without somebody bringing it up. And I steer clear of politics. I don't care about their politics, so I don't tell them about my politics. Yet everybody wants to talk about it, thinking that if they talk about it for their guy, it's going to make him win. And it's just like, oh, for crying out loud. You know what? There are better things to worry about. You can't change it. It's just history. You can't change history. If votes are in, they're just being countered. What happens, happens. It is what it is. As humans, you got to be flexible and adaptable and move on. It is sad. So, But we will see the outcome. We'll see what the effect of the outcome is and we'll move on. Well, it is a beautiful day in Colorado today, 80 degrees for uh, the first part of November. It's awesome. It's more like summer <laughs> than it is uh, than it is the beginning of winter. And uh, fortunately, the smoke is cleared because a lot of the fires are out. So it is absolutely gorgeous. How about in your neck of the woods, John? Well, here in Massachusetts, it's uh, mid-50s, so that's a great day. Yeah, it's fall. That's good. But it wasn't so nice the last two days. The other morning I got up, it was like 32. As it should be. Yeah. That, that's just to humble you, John. I mean, that's brisk air. That makes you feel good in the morning. You know, wakes you up. No, it doesn't. It makes you pull the covers up over your head. And... <laughs> yeah, well, uh, flying this whole week because the weather's been beautiful out here in Colorado. We've got a lot of airplanes flying, little GA airplanes out of the airport that I'm at. And traffic has definitely increased, so everybody's happy. Everybody's making money with all these rental airplanes and stuff. But we're still having accidents. Uh, I heard another three fatal accident up in the Buffalo area that happened uh, within the last couple of days. There was a Cessna 310 that crashed in a hangar in, or just on the edge of a hangar in uh, Vegas. You know, so the nice weather, of course, is is not only bringing pilots out to flight train and do all that, but, you know, the weather is nice and you got a lot of people flying. Um, there was a story locally 
which was of interest that general aviation flying, general aviation traffic into Aspen is up 135%. And, and we all know the reason for that. It's COVID. Um, these guys want more control. So people are using general aviation, whether it's their own airplane or chartering or whatever, to fly because they want the control. And um, so I'm sure that if we were to examine all of the statistical data from a lot of these airports, we'd see that everybody's general aviation flying is probably at some level of increase. So it, uh, that means more airplanes, more people flying, which is a good thing if, uh, if they are proficient and, and uh, maintaining uh, their currency and things like that. But it also could be detrimental because, of course, more airplanes uh, and more possibilities of pilots who may not have been flying and are not current or not proficient trying to do things. So time will tell, but I just picked up three new accidents so uh, this last week, and um, they're all very recent accidents. So I'm hoping this is not a trend because this is not a trend you or I like. No, Jesus. And my fear has been, and it has been well-founded that we're going to have a bunch of accidents with pilots that haven't flown for a while and run out and jump in their airplanes and want to go someplace, and they think they're as good as they were, and they're not. Yeah. And you and I have been talking about winter operations. We are coming into the winter time. We, uh, we did a couple of podcasts regarding American Eagle 4184, which was an in-flight icing event. We know that there are other similar type accidents with Buffalo Continental Express, where uh, they too were in an icing event, got themselves into trouble. But we see a lot of this, of course, with general aviation, either pilots who have airplanes that are capable of flying in icing conditions to some extent. Uh, just because you got boots on the airplane doesn't mean you can flight plan through the stuff. It's more or less really to get you out of trouble rather than put you in a position of trouble. Yes. And you're going to need to pay attention. If you haven't flown for a while, you need to make sure you fly with somebody. Just get the cobwebs out. And if you buy a new airplane, make sure that you are qualified before you go off running around the world with it. Yeah. Well, I was having a conversation this morning with a client about that very thing, John. And there are a lot of pilots out there. I see a lot of airplanes. Apparently, some disposable income is still available because there's a, a number of general aviation airplanes being bought and sold. So I'm on these uh, aircraft forums and stuff. And while that's a good thing, because, of course, it bolsters general aviation, like you just said, you're going to get pilots who, just because they have a private pilot with a single-engine land rating, think they can fly any single-engine land airplane, and that's not true. You really have to understand the airplane. You have to understand the nuances of the airplane. Transitioning from a Cessna 172 into a Lancer 4P is a huge transition. Yeah, it's a single-engine airplane. But in no way, shape, or form is that Lancer anything like a Cessna 172. And you can get yourself into a lot of trouble very quickly. And in fact, you and I are going to talk about an accident involving one of those types of airplanes, the Lancer 4P, with propeller issues. So it is one of those things, John, that right now, it's, it is a good time to bone up before the weather really turns. But rather than just knowing 
about your airplane. You really need to understand your airplane, both the airframe, the avionics, and of course, the engine operation. And that includes the propeller, as you just said. I mean, it's like the neglected stepsister or the ugly stepsister. Nobody pays attention to the propeller. Yeah, they go through the motions. You know, okay, I got to examine it. I look at it. I run my hand over the over the edges of the blades, looking for nicks and that kind of stuff. But if you stand on the ramp, like I see it all the time, when you stand on the ramp and watch people doing a pre-flight and they run their hand over the propeller and they just look at it and move on, I'm thinking, what did you just waste your time on? Because that's what it was. It was a waste of time. They went through the motions. But if I were to go out there and ask them, what is it that you just checked? They go, well, I checked the propeller. Well, great. Yeah, it's still on the front of the airplane. You know, what were you looking for? Well, I ran my hand over the edge of it and I didn't see any nicks or feel any nicks or cracks or anything like that. I said, yeah, so. So are you good to go? Oh, sure. You know, there wasn't anything obvious, so we're good to go. Well, it goes well beyond that, as you know, John, being on the maintenance side of the house. You know that there are a lot of insidious things that can go on with a propeller. And the fortunate thing is, is that when I had a propeller strike in my airplane, which I did not cause, by the way, because I wasn't in the airplane. I had a friend of mine flying the airplane and he whacked the taxiway light. And when you look at what happened, I mean, I know why the event happened. He cut a corner short, got a little distracted talking to ATC. And when you examine the propeller, it's like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with this propeller. I mean, there was a little scratch in the paint, and I had a th- three-bladed propeller on my Comanche. There was a little scratch in the paint where the tip caught the light, but it didn't look like much. But those are the kinds of events that people will write off thinking there's nothing wrong, and yeah, there's no damage, and you know, okay, so the paint scratched. But in fact, you have set that that propeller each of those blades and possibly the engine, you set all of those components up for some sort of failure. Yeah, one strike, I mean, you can mess up that propeller shaft on the engine. It can actually go back into the engine, too. But at the very least, you've got the the attach point between the propeller and the the shaft, the crankshaft, and all you have to do is hit it just right, and you're going to put a little crack in there. Yeah, or you set up a stress riser that over time, when you think about, and and I don't know how many people think about this that fly airplanes or even know it, but when you look at the loads, the forces that are acting on that spinning propeller during its highest rotations, which is typically high power settings that take off or go around, things like that, those blades are exhibiting centripetal load factors that you know equate to you know between 10 and 25 tons and for you John simple math 10 and 25 tons that equates to 20 to 50,000 pounds of force yep. so, but when you think about that that's a heck of a lot of force that's trying to pull that blade off the center hub whether it's out of the uh, out of the hub on a constant speed prop or trying to break it loose from the mounting hub on a fixed propeller fixed pitch propeller and it's also at at the same time it's being pulled forward so it's actually bending forward of the attach point in the hub so you got two forces acting on it 
with severe force. Yep. And if you've, if you've got any kind of stress riser because you had a prop nick or a prop strike that you don't think you see, you can't see it visually and that kind of thing. And all of a sudden, those little stress risers then begin to create cracks and those cracks will propagate until you have bad things happen. And I'm sure that you've seen it. I mean, one of the big things as a manufacturer, whether it's Hartzell or Macaulay or Sensenich or anybody else, you as a mechanic know that if you examine a propeller and there's a nick or a, or a gouge or some sort of rock strike on the propeller, that the manufacturers allow a certain level of gouge or nick in the in the leading edges of the of the propeller but then there is that crossover point where if it gets too deep and it can't be properly addressed by filing the prop or addressing the prop you've got to you've got to scrap that propeller blade and i'm sure you've seen that john throughout your career i've changed a number of them over the years and even in big airplanes and big propeller airplanes too I mean, it's, it's not uncommon to catch something on landing at an airport that uh, didn't take care of their FOD. I mean, on Convair's uh, 580s, I've changed more than one propeller because it, it hit something on the taxi coming in and put a deep gouge in one of the blades. We've seen it. There was a C-130 that lost the blade, and because of the imbalance after it lost the blade, it damn near ripped the engine right off the airplane. You're lucky if it takes the, air, the engine off because sometimes it it could it has the potential of taking the wing off the airplane. Yeah, absolutely. And that when they looked at it, and this was a, a military airplane where you expect that because they spend so many hours performing maintenance on these airplanes to keep them battle ready, if you will, this propeller was full of corrosion and had developed a fatigue crack that eventually uh, resulted in uh, the loss of the blade and actually the entire propeller. We also saw it in an accident. If you remember, John, it killed a senator. It was an Embraer 120 that crashed. In Georgia, sure. Tower. Yeah, Senator Tower. And when you when you look at all of the issues that, that came out of that, that too was a propeller failure that disabled or incapacitated the airplane such that the pilots were unable to control the aircraft. Uh, yeah, in fact, my, the first accident I did after becoming a board member was an Embraer 120 in Georgia that lost a propeller at, uh, I think it was 13,000 feet or 14,000 feet, lost a blade, most of the blade. So it it does happen, whether you're in a major organization or if you just own your own little airplane off someplace, you've got to pay attention to the propeller. And you also need to have good insurance, so I might as well give a, a, a shout-out to our sponsor of EMCO, because if you have a good insurance program and you hit something, at least it should be covered. That was a very nice segue into that. And at the time of my prop strike on my airplane, I had a EMCO, and again, they took very good care of the situation it gave me an opportunity to upgrade my propeller. I, I paid the difference. But I also, because of that propeller strike, as benign 
as you would think it is because eh, it was just the taxi light, you know, the glass broke, not a big deal. The frangible stand was still there. It was slightly bent. So what damage could it have done to the engine? Well, being the safety guy, I said, I'm not taking any chances because just my luck, the worst time that I, uh, <laughs> that something lets go is going to be on a dark and stormy night when I'm shooting an instrument approach somewhere. So I ended up having a, uh, a complete engine teardown. In fact, I had it overhauled at the time and it was great. I mean, Avemco took care of what they believed that they were responsible for. I took care of the rest, but it, it was peace of mind. The fact that I knew that I had a solid propeller and a solid engine. So I appreciate, you know, Avemco working with me. And I think that if you're shopping for insurance, you want an insurance company that you can provide suggestions to. If they say, well, this is all we're going to cover. If you come up with a, a good discussion like I did, they were very amiable to working with me to go above and beyond what my policy covered. So it, it worked out really well for me. And I know that with our sponsorship by Avemco, they're offering a 5% discount to those folks who say that they listen to flight safety detectives. And it, you know, every dollar helps as far as a discount is concerned. But the bigger thing is you want an insurance company that you're not going to fight with every time there is an event that you believe needs to be covered. We see it all the time. We see it in car insurance on a regular basis. The last thing you want is your airplane insurance company fighting with you as well. That's true. And, you know, you just got to know your limits. It's America. You pay for service for whatever it is, you, your amount of coverage you want. And if you're going to assume some of the risk yourself, then you've got to be conscious of that. It's just like pre-planning for the flight that you're going to fly. you got to pre-plan for in the event something bad happens and you have insurance to cover you, including not only insurance on your airplane for damage to it, but also liability insurance. Yeah, that's a big issue. Yeah, because you could also wipe out everything you own. You know, and as you get older, you get your house paid for, and then all of a sudden you, you have a, a ground accident and somebody else is going to own your house if you're not covered. Well, if you're looking for insurance, Avemco, give them a call at 888-879-0389. Tell them Greg and John sent you. Yeah, tell them that we sent you and you can get a discount. We don't get a commission on that, by the way. So we have a lot of respect for Avemco. So we push it, not just because they're sponsors, actually. You know, we, we had talked about them before we even they became a sponsor. An accident that I worked on where there was some big insurance issues did involve a Lancer 4P piston single-engine airplane. Pilot was flying on a long cross-country flight from Orlando to Norfolk, Virginia. And as he was coming up the coast of uh, South Carolina, he was slightly out over the water. They were at cruise altitude, right? I think if I remember right, around 13,000 feet. Fat up and happy with him and, uh, and another person in the airplane. Next thing you know, they heard this loud bang, and the windshield was just covered with oil. And of course, you know, you go into a kind of this high stress, high anxiety, panic, startle effect kind of mode going, What was that? What's going on? 
Next thing you know, you got an obscured windshield because the oil had, had coated it. And now you've got to get your wits about you and start doing what you know is to be the right thing. And that is fly the airplane. It's not a time to try and figure out what caused the loud bang. It's a time for you as the pilot to make sure that you have whatever is left of your airplane, because you don't know from the bang what left, whether it was a wing, a propeller, you know, a, a window, you don't know. You just got to fly the airplane. This pilot did, in fact, maintain control of the airplane, was flying the airplane, got it into a glide. But in doing his evaluation, and he, again, he's at 13,000 feet. So he has a little bit of time to think about his alternatives. And of course, having uh, the avionics that he had in his airplane, and you push that magic button that says go to nearest, looking for an airport, the closest airport, which was definitely within gliding distance, was Hilton Head. The pilot ended up turning towards the shoreline, but rather than go to the airport, he decided that he believed, based on what we think was the performance of the aircraft, as he kind of alluded, that he wasn't going to make the airport and decided he was going to land on a crowded beach. And in looking at what happened in the aftermath, he flew an entire basic uh, air traffic pattern. He flew, based on the radar data, a rectangular circuit to line up with the beach. And unfortunately, as he was trying to land right at the shoreline where the water and the sand meet, not out over the water, he was right along that water line. Of course, he's coming in. It's a high-performance airplane, so his glide speed's high. There were a lot of people on the beach, some of which did move out of the way because they could see this airplane coming down to land on the beach. Unfortunately, the airplane touched down in the sand, and there was a jogger on the beach with his earbuds in, jogging in the same direction as the airplane was traveling. So the airplane was coming or approaching this jogger on the beach from behind. Jogger never heard him, of course, because the engine had quit. He was a big glider. And you know, John, they don't have horns on that airplane. So he, he was unable to uh, to make any kind of alert to this jogger and ended up striking him. And unfortunately, the jogger was killed. The airplane, when the gear was in the sand, ended up twisting and turning and ended up in the water. The aircraft was recovered. The, the pilot and the passenger survived with no injuries. But the real key to this accident, other than the pilot's decision-making to try and land on the beach, when in fact he, he should have gone to the airport, which he could have made very easily, because I went up and did some glide testing in an airplane, I was at a substantially lower altitude and was able to make it from where he had to make that decision. I was able to make it to the airport. So, of course, that was a, a critical decision point. But when you start looking at why did this propeller fail, why did the prop flange, which was examined after the accident, the entire propeller, including the prop flange off the crankshaft, separated from the aircraft in flight. Unfortunately, it was never recovered because it happened out over the ocean. But in looking at the failure mode, the NTSB, when they looked at the crankshaft, determined that there were 
cracks in that crankshaft, that propeller crankshaft. And of course, they emanated from the propeller flange. And when you go back and look at all of the maintenance records, especially for the engine, there was never any reference. Now, this pilot had bought this engine as he was building the airplane. He bought this engine as a separate component along with the propeller. He believed that he had all of the history for this engine, put it on his airplane, mounted the propeller, and had put a number of hours on the airplane with the engine. Unbeknownst to him, the records did not reflect that this particular engine didn't have any prop strike history recorded in the records. But it's obvious, based on the cracking and where it occurred, that these this flange had separated from a crack that had originated from some sort of external stress event that set up a stress riser. It then propagated into a crack and based on in-service use, ended up failing. And, and when you start looking at the lineage of this engine and the crankshaft, it was determined that there had been a previous propeller strike that was never recorded. And you and I have talked about maintenance records. You and I have talked about the responsibility of a mechanic to properly record everything. But we've also talked about a pilot reviewing those records, asking questions, making sure that whether it's their airplane, an engine, an airframe, a brand new airplane, a brand new engine, that they're fully conversant and understanding of what lies beneath the surface of those logbooks. And we were able to find through uh, some additional records evidence that this engine had suffered a propeller strike. And the safety board did too. They, their probable cause was loss of engine power due to the failure of the crankshaft as a result of a previous propeller strike. And when you read the record for this accident, it, it doesn't appear that that propeller strike was a major propeller strike. It's really behooves everybody, pilot, mechanic, to make sure that when you are involved with a prop strike, that A, you take a good look at it, look a little bit beyond the obvious, and and also make sure you record everything. You know, a lot of people, maintenance people, think, well, if, I, if I'm not in the book for, with my signature, you know, I just give a verbal to the pilot, I'm off the hook. Well, that's not always the case. Because they can't, if... You know, if you did an inspection on an airplane, you didn't. You just perform maintenance, and it needs to be recorded. And if that can be found out, and sometimes it can be found out, you never. Today, with with cameras everywhere, you never know what's going to happen. And if you're found out to be in non-compliance with recording what you did, you get FAA trouble. If there's an accident like this one, you could end up on the hook for a lot of liability, and. Most maintenance people don't have liability insurance. Yeah, that's a that's a huge issue for those folks. Yes. Uh, so they're not protected. So they end up doing all sorts of creative things to uh, protect whatever wealth that they have amassed, which is usually their house. Most working people, that's about the biggest thing you have. Yeah. And you know, any general aviation airport, I see it all the time. When I'm traveling to all these airports, something goes on. They go, oh, yeah, why don't you go see Charlie? His, uh, he's got that hangar at the very end of the row over there. You know, he does maintenance out of his hangar. Oh, I look for the black pickup truck. 
Yeah, exactly. You know, the mechanic with the pickup truck with the toolbox in the back and Jackson. I mean, it, it's you see that everywhere. You see that everywhere. But there's all sorts of risks with that. Fortunately, most of them know that they don't want to work on propellers. But every once in a while, you get somebody that thinks they can owe it all, and they're willing to jump in and uh, do anything. Well, that's a recipe for a disaster. Well, you know that when I had, because I had a Hartzell propeller on my airplane, I went online, I pulled down all of the maintenance manuals for the propeller, because in those manuals, it does tell the mechanic that if there is a nick or some sort of gouge in the propeller, it gives you the depth, you know, the width and the depth of that gouge, and it gives you the techniques to dress that propeller to keep it airworthy. Or if it exceeds certain limits, it basically says you got to trash it. And that is good information for pilots to research on their respective propellers. One, when they're out there pre-flighting and they run their finger over and there is a nick or a gouge because they picked up a rock or whatever, they have to know in essence, you know, in generalities, not like you have to carry a ruler in your back pocket. But if that gouge feels a certain way or is of a certain depth or width, you know that you have to have a mechanic look at that because that nick is not something that, yeah, you can file it out and you can make it look pretty and dress it up and all that kind of stuff. But what that nick or gouge has done is set up a stress riser for a crack. And you and I looked at an accident where the propeller was, you know, they had, I think, over 2,600 hours on the propeller had never been overhauled. They had gone through a number of annual inspections, and that particular propeller had to be inspected formally every 500 hours. And unfortunately, because it wasn't cared for properly, and it's obvious that it was not examined properly during the course of these annual inspections, 20 inches of the blade separated. And when you got two propeller blades and half of one leaves the aircraft, the vibration at a high power setting is instantaneously going to take that engine off the front end of the airplane. Yes, yes. And you've seen it, John. You know how critical this is because there'll be times where, yeah, I mean, a mechanic, there is a judgment call. But the good thing for a mechanic is they have at least some guidance. If a pilot doesn't have that same level of knowledge or guidance, then they just assume, yeah, it's nicked, and I'll tell my mechanic about, about it. And, you know, he'll get a file out and he'll dress it up and clean it up. It just goes more than that. And you got to remember that, you know, it, the devil is in the details. And the details are, yeah, there's a crack there or there's a nick there. But what lies behind or beneath the surface that the pilot or even the mechanic can't really see right and what do i have to do you know these procedures are called out for for maintenance people what they have to do to ensure that they that the airplane is airworthy and they, they need to have their antenna on real sensitive when you're working around props for the reason we stated in this beginning the forces that act upon the propeller in flight are just huge huge One thing that you and I have seen through our days of accident investigation, I don't know how many airplanes, both piston and turbine, where the airplane has landed, gear up or crashed, where there was an instant stoppage of the engine. Well, while it sounds, yeah, it was instant stoppage, 
that engine didn't instantly stop. I've seen it where the propeller blades have ground themselves into the, the ground, the surface. That engine is still trying to drive that propeller. And there's enough resistance then that the engine eventually fails. But when you look at the crankshaft, it's kind of, I mean, <laughs> some of them have been really bad that I've seen, where it looks like somebody has held the crankshaft like a dish rag and twisted it. You can actually see the entire twist in the crankshaft. And probably the most stout part, it is the stout, most stout part of an engine, is that crankshaft because of all the forces continually acting on it. Yep, and I've seen them take a beating. Not only the prop, but also detonation from bad gas or improper mixture. So it, the crankshaft and the, the pistons and the connecting rods take a hell of a beating when, at either end. So that's why it is so robust. And the centrifugal forces on inside the engine are also huge. The word of caution, too, for pilots, if you have had a prop strike a little one nicks and damage and you've had it dressed out on every inspection after it's done you should take a very close look at the bottom of that radius out little hole that ends up after it's been filed clean to make sure that the crack doesn't reappear and progress you know it isn't just file and forget all right so it's going to be filed smooth clean make it nice and uh, slipstream friendly, but then you've got to watch it because they can reappear. Sometimes the maintenance guy doesn't go deep enough. It looks like he went deep enough and uh, and it didn't because sometimes you can actually get the flow of material back into the crack by being aggressive with the file instead of light. So it's, it's, uh, it's not just file and forget, guys. Take a good look at it every time you go out to fly. Yeah. And you have to remember that when you do have a nick or a cut or some sort of gouge in that propeller blade, that just those distortions in the blade don't allow all the all the forces to be transmitted uniformly. So now those little concentrated areas are going to be concentrated with the high forces that are exhibited on that blade. And again, and you look at these little things and you just write them off, that's eh, not a big deal. It is a huge deal because, again, you lose six inches of a propeller blade. That engine is going to vibrate so badly that by the time you realize what's going on, either the props come off and or the engine has come off. I mean, it's it creates such an imbalance. It could render the aircraft uncontrollable. And I guarantee if you lose the engine, or at least breaks loose from the motor mount, and is it in skewed? You change weight and balance. You change a variety of different things. You you do have a lot of problems. And I mean, prop strikes is it embarrassment sometimes? Yeah, but a, a lot of folks that are operating on unimproved runways where there is gravel or the potential pick up gravel. We know that even at general aviation airports, I've been into airports where the ramp is just covered with all sorts of pebbles and garbage on the ramp. You know, I can't go out there and sweep it with a broom before I taxi. So there's always the potential to pick up a rock. I've seen guys who have taxied over the tie down, the ropes and the chains, where the prop, because of its proximity to the ground, 
have picked up the rope. Next thing you know, it's in the prop. I mean, there is always a possible mechanism to damage the prop. And that's why it's so important that you spend extra time with the propeller. Because the first thing that, that's going to happen if you have a propeller problem in flight is you're going to be wishing you were on the ground. Yes, and you, you raise a good point there about uh, all the debris around airports. You know, I learned to fly it on a grass strip in a grass airport. And areas on that airport, not so much on the runway, but on the taxiways, were bare ground. And uh, that was always a concern. That's the, you know, a rock that ends up in the wrong place when you go by and you pick it up. Because with a tail dragger, you're always pushing the, the throttle up while you're taxiing to get enough airflow so that the, the rudder can move you around. That can be an issue. You know, fortunately, there's not a lot of tail dragons left. Yeah, until you go back up to Alaska. <laughs> yeah, right. They, 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 all the tail dragons seem to gravitate towards Alaska. It's a perfect airplane for up there. You don't need a lot of runway both places. Oh, speaking of that, did, have you seen the, the the videos on YouTube with these guys that can land and less than the distance of the airplane and take off and in uh, you know two airplane lengths? It's, it is amazing. Yeah, and you know the other things with propellers that you know sometimes people you know, pilots just they don't think of it as being a big deal because one they've seen other people do it or other pilots do it. Two, they may have developed a bad habit because their instructor did it, and that is pushing and pulling the airplane by the prop. I don't know how many times I've seen guys, they grab the propeller, and you know you get a passenger out there, and you say, okay, get around the front of the airplane. I'll push at the wing. You pull on that propeller. Well, they grab the upward portion of the blade, or they don't get right at the hub, and they're pulling it. Well, that crankshaft moves inside that engine when you push it and pull it. Um, you may not perceive it. And you, again, all of these little things over time set up failure mode. And, you know, you grab the prop at the very end of the, the prop. It, it does flex. It does. I mean, you're pulling 3,000, 4,000 pounds of airplane using the blade. And that blade is going to bend slightly, even if it's not perceivable. And you continually do it over and over and over again. Those little things, I mean, <laughs> they can set up stress risers. And I, and I guarantee that if you talk to any of the propeller manufacturers, their first word of advice is do not push or pull the airplane using the propeller. Yep. That's why you have a tow bar. Yeah. And be careful of the spinner. I see guys that pound on the spinner. Because they just did something that was a problem in, in repositioning the airplane or whatever. Usually it's ramp guys. It's not the maintenance guy and it's not the pilot. And they'll, they'll punch in, you know, in uh, anger with themselves usually. They'll whack the spinner. Well, spinners are not that solid. And they're, and they're only attached with uh, three or four different places. With You know, it's not a big meaty attachment point. You can actually move those things and, and deflect them a little bit. And that you see it sometimes on spinners that aren't running true. And you know that's going to be failed. The spinner's mount's going to fail at some point. Yeah. And and the biggest thing, John, I mean, when I go out and do a pre-flight on uh, piston engine 
with either constant speed or fixed pitch prop, you really got to think about what it is that you're looking at and looking for. I've seen a lot of abused airplanes out there where there is just dirt, grime, you know, just crappy oil on the backside, on the hub, on the uh, propeller spinner back plate. I mean, it's just dirty. And you, I mean, if there's oil back there, you got to go, hmm, why is there so much oil back here that's accumulating all this dirt and dust and grime and all that kind of stuff? Is there a problem? with the steel where the crankshaft comes out of the engine. Is it puking oil? Is there something going on with my constant speed prop in the hub that it's leaking oil? You have to really take a good look and examine not only the propeller blades themselves, but you got to look behind it. You got to look at the back. You got to look at the, the spinner. If you start to see cracks developing in the screws that hold the spinner to the back plate, that is a precursor to possibly some catastrophic event because that's letting you know that there is some sort of stress on that spinner that shouldn't be there. And all of a sudden now you've developed these cracks. Now it's obvious, John, and you know it. I mean, yeah, you get somebody that's wrenched down a screw and yeah, they they've dented the metal and eventually the, the metal, you know, through, through in-service use is going to fatigue and start to crack. But I'm talking about the spinner that's been properly attached, especially if the airplane's just come out of maintenance or a, a prop overhaul where things should be torqued properly and installed properly. The next thing you know, you start to see things that just don't look right. And I guarantee if that crack on that spinner propagates and that spinner comes loose, that too, you know, it's a prescription for disaster. That spinner comes off, who knows it? pops through the windscreen and takes out the windscreen and whoever's sitting behind it, um, it damages the leading edge. It goes above the aircraft. It goes below the aircraft. You don't know what it's going to do. So you can't take these little things for granted. It's looking for cracks. It's looking for things that do not look normal. And I know that a lot of the guys that, uh, that are friends of mine who own airplanes, I mean, they spit shine their airplanes before they fly, after they fly, and in between. And it's very obvious that, I mean, some of them are very anal, which is a good thing. You know, you walk around and, you know, next thing you know, they get a rag in their hand and they go, oh, man, there's a drop of oil. Servo control. Engine start panel. Crank it aboard. It really is wise to really do a detailed inspection on the airplane every time. Because over time, you're going to know every nuance of that airplane. And, you know, running your hand at the, at the hub of your propeller, if it's constant speed, you're going to find misting oil there. You're going to get to know what's normal. And then one day you're going to put your hand up in there and you're going to find a, a lot more oil. Maybe not enough to even be dripping on the ground. All right. But you're going to feel the oil. You're going to know something has changed. And that's the time when you get somebody to look at it. All right. So it really, it really pays to do that. It's just like your car, too. I mean, how many times, how many people never check their tires? I know. I walk around my car at least once a day looking at the tire. Usually when I go out in the morning, I approach the vehicle from the non-driving side and walk around and look at my tires. Because that's my contact with the road. It's important. In airplanes, we should do the same thing. I mean, we've lost Learjets because of tires that were underinflated. 
We've had crashes just because of a low tire. With DC-8, I remember we lost a DC-8 because of a tire that was underinflated. So it's, it's uh, as a pilot, you need to know what you're flying and you need to know the condition of it. And the only way you're going to do that is a very observant walk around and using all the senses. You know, I, I've often said this when I, when I, years ago, when I was training mechanics and talking, mechanics have to use all their senses, all right? It's what you look at. It's what you hear when an engine is running, what you feel with your hands and the vibrations that you can feel through the airframe. Right? So you need to use all your senses to get the information that you need to make a very well-informed decision. And, and pilots need to do the same thing. And you bring up a good point, John, about vibration. Again, I'm very sensitive to small vibrations in my car. I'll drive my car with two fingers on the steering wheel when I'm on a smooth road like a highway. And if I feel a vibration, that means I got a tire issue. Don't know exactly where it might be, but I know I have a tire issue because if I'm feeling that feedback into the steering wheel, and I've got a tire that's slightly out of round, or I've picked up a rock in a tire. The other one, I, I mean, I got a brand new set of tires on my car a month ago. I walked out the other day, and as I was getting in the car, the car looked like it was listing a little bit to down and to the left. And I'm thinking, well, I'm, I'm parked in my garage. The floor is level there. I looked at the, the rear tire, and it looked squishy. It wasn't flat, but it just looked like, Maybe I just lost it, you know, because the car's been sitting. I was on travel and stuff, and I thought, well, with cold weather, air pressure went down. As soon as I got in the car, I got that little love message on the instrument panel that I had low tire pressure. So I got back out of the car. I happened to bend down, and sure enough, there was a nice metal sheet metal screw stuck in a brand-new tire. It's little things like that. The same with, you know, that vibration in an airplane. That slight vibration, because that prop is out of balance, again, those forces are transmitted outward as the prop is spinning in, a, in an arc, but that little vibration is setting up stress risers throughout the entire crankshaft and engine all the way back into the motor mounts. So what feels like, a, a you know, eh, it's not that big a deal is a big deal, because if you do have a gouge in the propeller and the gouge has been dressed, by a mechanic and it's been done properly that loss of material creates the imbalance and it's little things like this it's not big things it's little things and you know john we're coming into winter operations and in some places we're already there with the cold temperatures i don't know how many pilots i know who yeah they're procedure oriented they run down the checklist they exercise the prop when you talk to them or say what'd you just do well, I'm exercising the propeller. Well, why are you doing that? Well, to make sure that, you know, it works. <laughs> it goes beyond that. Uh, you know, you have to have the oil temperature at an operating temperature so that the prop hub and the oil that flows through that prop hub is moving those blades as they are designed. You've got oil that's as thick as tar. Those blades are not going to move. When you exercise the propeller, or if they do, it's really going to bog down the prop, the prop governor, and of course the engine. And people, uh, uh, I know some guys that you know they it's, you know kick the tires, light the fire, let's get out of here. 
they're not willing to wait, you know, the 10 or 12 minutes or do a run up with sufficient power to get that engine oil warmed up before they do that prop check. Yes. Well, we've talked about props a lot now. I hope that our listeners pay attention to that because it's very, very important to their safety. Yeah. Well, we're coming into the winter season. So again, it, it's all about, you know, being very cognizant because that prop is what's, you know, the difference between life and death in some cases. So you have to give it some extra attention. We give a lot of attention when we walk around the airplane, you're checking the leading edges, you're checking the stall warning system, you're checking the pitot tubes and the static ports and, and uh, you know, everything else and the hinges on flight controls. But you really got to just spend some extra time looking at the propeller, not just go out there and run your hand over the edges and go, yeah, we're good to go. There is more to that propeller than just those leading edges. Yes. And let's not forget the de-icing boots on those propellers that have have uh, electrical heating elements in there. Yep. And you got to exercise those, too, every once in a while, just to make sure that when you turn the prop heat on, it works. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, especially now in, in the coming into winter season. Yep. So, well, I know that hopefully... Folks uh, will heed the warning. You know, don't take your propeller for granted. It's just too valuable a component to neglect it. And if there's intervals for um, repetitive inspections or you see something out of the ordinary, get in touch with your mechanic. Take immediate action. Don't wait till something happens in flight because that is definitely not the time to deal with it. And that's really going to create an issue for you because. You're going to end up calling your insurance company and saying, yeah, I had a problem. <laughs> yes. And it's going to be more than just fixing a, a prop. And I hope if anybody's out there listening that has insurance needs that they consider calling a Vemco. They've been passionate about safety for 60 years. You know, they've been supporters of the uh, FAA's Fast Team Wings program. Now they're helping uh, deflate some of the costs on this podcast. They're always reaching out, trying to raise the bar, so to speak, on general aviation pilots. So if you want to save some money, mention to Avemco that you've been listening to our podcast, and they'll give you a 5% discount. And again, the phone number is 888-879-0389, or you can visit them online at avemco.com backslash flight safety. I think that this is good information going into, uh, I mean, it's good information all year round, but going into the winter season, because we tend not to want to stand outside where it's 20 below zero pre-flight in the airplane and we kind of rush through it. So definitely take that extra time. I would definitely go to one of the, the propeller manufacturers' websites and really get into the construction of the propeller and the maintenance manual with all of the, uh, the specs. Because as a pilot, that's great knowledge to have in the back of your head when you're operating the airplane. So you can never be too safe. You can never be too educated with regard to the operation of your aircraft. And I think that's a good way to do it. And this is one of the subjects that came in through an email. So we appreciate the suggestions like we always do with regard to doing shows John and I, we always talk uh, with regard to what are we going to talk about on the next show? What accidents are we going to dissect? What do we think 
is of interest to the uh, to the listener. But we appreciate you, the listener, giving us feedback, what you want to hear about, what you think that we should be talking about, accidents that you think are of interest. And we appreciate that. And you can always provide us any kind of feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, through our email at flightsafetydetectives with an S at gmail.com. John and I really appreciate, and I, I actually enjoy because I've been educated by some folks that have provided us emails. They've, they've gotten into a, a decent discussion where it's just like, man, they brought that up that either I forgot about or that's a good point to bring up. So we do appreciate that feedback about the shows. We do appreciate, of course, our listeners' support. We're going to uh, continue to dissect some accidents. John and I have a couple of accidents that we're going to be talking about based on listeners' input. So uh, we're working on that right now. So, my friend, I hope that the weather stays nice where you are because we know that uh, we're supposed to get 20 inches of snow in the southern part of Colorado after being 80 degrees. It's uh, We're going to have a, a blustery weekend, at least in the southern part of the state. We might get a couple inches here, so I'm going to lay some fertilizer down so that it gets watered in. But I hope you stay safe. Hope you recover from election hangover. As I always do, I'll leave you with the last word. Okay, everybody, please keep the cards and letters coming. We love those emails. And as I always say, stay safe in your personal life. Mask up and fly safe if you're going to get out there. And if you're rusty, make sure you fly with somebody before you take off by yourself. With that, have a great day. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at PAMA.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening. At British Airways, we're recruiting in our ground operations team at London Heathrow. You'll have bags of responsibility as a valued colleague below the wing of our aircraft. Every touchdown and takeoff would not be possible without our brilliant team. So this is your chance to make a real difference and showcase your original skills and talents. New joiners will receive a £1,000 sign-on bonus, along with staff travel benefits from day one. Plus, we offer world-class training and career development opportunities. Bonus terms and conditions apply. Visit ba.com careers and apply now.